Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Aaron Corte and I'm the news editor at Resident Advisor. For more than 20 years, Roman Flugel has reinvented himself. He emerged as part of the fertile Frankfurt scene in the 90s that spawned three much-loved labels, Playhouse, Clang and Ongaku Music. He's worked under a string of solo aliases that have taken him from jacking house and electro to experimental and ambient. He formed the duo Alter Ego with Jorn Ellingwitke, and the success of that partnership brought its own rewards and challenges. The past few years have ushered in a new era for Flugel. In 2011, he put out Fatty Folders, his first solo album under his given name, and it's regarded by many as his most accomplished work to date. When I caught up with Flugel at this year's Nuit Sonore Festival in Lyon, we started our discussion by talking about his next album, which is coming out via Dial in September. have a new album on the way this year is it all finished and ready to go yeah it's finally finished it uh, mastering has been done um, artwork has been finished and it should be out or it will be out on the 1st of September this year well your last LP fatty folders came out in 2011 so there's a there's a three-year gap there how long did you spend working on this one since I was touring a lot and playing a lot it took me quite a long time to finish the album so in between like within I would say in total it might have been three up to four months but if you see the whole time it took me much longer how does it sound compared to, to fatty folders that was the first album that you had released under your your given name and how does this compare as as a follow-up well in general i would say it has a different different vibe different groove um, i got rid of of jazz or considered jazz elements like solos or like the percussions I've used, they're completely different. It's a different texture all over. It's more distorted. It's more noisy. It's it's a little slower, and uh, it's a little darker at the same time. I would say. Was there a particular reason why you decided to to, to drop the kind of jazz influences on this <laughs> record, or did that just happen? I think it just happened. It was um, the overall feel I had was um, a little more crowdy let's say and uh, I didn't use any uh, samples it was all I mean everything I sampled was played by myself this time and I tried to create a certain texture texture um, in the music and uh, therefore I had to get rid of a certain yeah let's say groove or yeah certain influences I used to have 
what kind of instruments were you were you using and performing yourself in the making of the record? Uh, even though I'm not a guitarist, I was I was using a guitar. I was using lots of feedbacks, and I have a little Marshall amp in my studio, and I was working with that for feedbacks and put them on top. I was using uh, very old drum machines, like a keynote drum machines from the 1973, I think, stuff like that, and and got rid of, let's say, like the percussion I still used on, on Fatty Folders. Were you consuming much music or listening to much music while you were making the album or did you kind of shut yourself off completely from, from outside? Well, I, I usually I'm always listening to music but not to to get a certain uh, vibe for my own productions. It's just, um, it could be anything but I don't usually listen to a certain style, a style of music to get involved into my own stuff. But Sure. I mean, I'm, I've always been a fan of crowd rock and I've always been a fan of guitar brands that are more noisy or more left left field. So, yeah, that's also part of me. And the album's coming out through Dial. How did your association with, with that label begin? Well, I know David Lieske and Pete for a very long time. I, I think I got to know them back in 95 when we put out an album as uh, Sensorama on the Hamburg-based Laudomat label. I think David at that time, he was probably 16 years old or something. He was a volunteer and that's how I got to know him. And a little later I, know, I knew Peter and my first ever remix I did was for Carsten Joost. Oh, it was one of the first dial records ever. So I got involved very early. Was it a fairly natural thing when it came to, to releasing Fatty Folders and, and now this next album? To do it through Dial, was that a, an easy choice for you? Absolutely, because I really love what they're doing. I really like the view they have, uh, like the overview, like the total view of of music, um, what they prefer or what they really like to feature. There's, it's a wide range of music, but always with a with an interesting twist. And I like them personally a lot, so it was really easy to, for me to say yes. Is it important for you to work with people and work with labels of people that you consider friends I, I know you've also been putting a few records out recently through running back for example and i've read interviews that you're, you're quite close friends with with good jansen yes i think it's very important for me after all those years to be honest i i always worked with with people i would consider be friends and um, in, especially if you put out independent music it's a very good thing to do i would say i guess before you you started working closely with dial in, in terms of with fatty folders um the, the labels you're most associated with were, of course, Playhouse, Ongaku, and Clang. It seems like those labels have now run their course. Yes. Um, how did your involvement with them come to an end? Well, the story of Clang and Playhouse starts 20 years ago in the early 90s. That's when I did productions together with my long-time studio partner, Jörn Wutke, back then as a as Acid Jesus. This was our first project. And with the demo tape, we went to a record, record shop in Frankfurt it was the Delirium record store. And there it was Heiko and Atta working, the two guys we would start um, the labels with. This is how it all began. And then step by step, it became bigger and bigger and, and, and it, it became a company. And we worked in total like more than 15 years together. Had our peak time, we had a nice office, employees and uh, volunteers and all that. But at a certain time, it all changed. And what was that? What was that time? The time was when the internet became faster, and when uh, 
our whole business was based on selling vinyl records. Um, even with the strangest records at that time, we sold about a thousand twelve inches, which was always good to to pay the money for the artist and the record and all that. No problem at all. In between, we had much more successful records, but the whole business was vinyl. And when we started to realize that the vinyl sales were going down, we weren't fast enough to change our idea of what record business could be like back in the days and that was finally um, the end of it for us yeah is that a regret that you didn't sort of react quicker to to sort well, of prevailing so trends or? sometimes i regret but at the same time there's no way back and it's not not everything is our fault i mean many people had to struggle with the fact that record sales went down the hill for example all the distribution companies and if you have a strong record like for example Ricardo Villalobos' first album, which sold thousands and thousands of CDs and vinyls, and then you don't get the money back from the distributor, you have a problem. And that's what happened to us. And uh, am I right in saying this is this is around the sort of turn of the millennium when yeah, the distribution exactly. sort of business fell out? I mean, I guess it's a, it's a story that's been, you know, a lot of labels have experienced, especially across Europe, like the likes of some of them like Clone and Versatile, I guess, have weather that storm yeah but i guess you were saying you at the peak of it you had an office you had employees was that a sort of overnight where you had to kind of end up cutting the, the label business or was it a, a gradual decline it was a gradual decline it's not nothing that hits you by with a hammer or something you just it's it's something you realize step by step and then you try to turn it all in a different direction but then it's already too late that's what we realized then we cut down office space and Less people were working for us, but you can't, you couldn't, we weren't able to, to be fast enough. And you don't, I mean, you still believe in what you do, but you, at a certain point you find out, okay, belief is not enough. You have to make decisions and maybe those decisions were too late. And in terms of your role with, with these labels, which were you most closely involved with and what was your kind of influence in the sort of day-to-day -day running of... Um, I would say I was very much involved uh, with Klang Electronic uh, because of um, being an A&R for that label and, and also yeah, taking care of, of, of records in general that came out of Klang. And uh, also in the very beginning I was uh, <laughs> taking care of accounts, but uh, that changed drastically when I got more into things like alter ego and touring and all that. At the moment... Um there seems to be a lot of a lot of producers, especially younger ones, who are kind of going out and starting their own label to put out their own music and also the music of of their friends or whatever. Do you have any desire whatsoever to to start up your own label in the future? Well, I wouldn't start a label like I did with Klang and Playhouse. If I do something, I would keep it really slow, uh, really small, not slow but small. And uh, I'm not sure if I really want to. I mean, there's people who can do it a lot better than me probably sometimes it's also hard because it it doesn't get along with you as a producer or as a dj traveling a lot and all at the same time it might be a little too much i guess i want to ask you if, if you, you see a situation where lots of artists have their own label is it, as a good thing or a bad thing it sounds like you sort of prefer working with a label like dial which has a sort of established well-defined aesthetic and and where someone else can kind of take care of the the background right side yeah. of things yeah yeah definitely because I can be focused on, on other things. And just sort of taking things back a bit to, to sort of growing up in, in Frankfurt, how did you first find out about electronic music? Well, I think it was quite early because um, 
Frankfurt has been a, a major city for, for dance music in Germany, back in Western Germany, to say. And um, there was this huge, huge club at the Frankfurt Main Airport, the Dorian Gray, which was one of the first places in Germany that had no limits in terms of opening hours because airports have a different law than any other cities. And that was the reason why the party on weekends were really crazy and some really interesting people were there involved already who became uh, later very famous people like Sven Fethi who was playing in this place for a long time and during the 80s. And my elder brother, he went there and he like probably in 82, 83 something like this and you could buy tapes in this club and he brought back those tapes and i was completely addicted to these tapes that were basically like very early um electro and and new beat and this kind of music and i got totally addicted by listening to those tapes when i was um, able to go out on my own i was trying to go to frankfurt as soon as possible because because i was living a little bit further south And I managed to get along with some friends of my brother. Uh, we managed to get into those places like when I was 17 or 16, the way before I was allowed to. And I got completely yeah, into this kind of music back then. A little later, I think 87 or 88, I think 87 for Christmas, my brother handed me a, a vinyl, a compilation of uh, street sounds this compilation label and it was uh, i think it was called yeah, already it was already called techno or something like this and on this uh, compilation it was only very very early detroit and chicago techno and this is how it all started for me with this compilation in terms of the the inspiration you got from that compilation was that right i want to start producing or i want to start djing or or both um, I would say both, but in the beginning it was basically uh, producing. Um, I bought records, but I, I didn't have record players or anything, to like not two or two of them. But I wanted to make this kind of music. So what I did, I was working in during holidays and um, was finally able to buy my first drum computer and a, and a synthesizer. And no sequence at that time because I, I had a four-track cassette player and recorded everything on four-track, like playing with my fingers, bass lines for five and a half minutes until it was finished. <laughs> and yeah, that's how it was. Sort of taking it back even further than that, you got your start in, in music in general. You were playing the piano from quite a young age. Is that Yeah, that yeah. I started the piano, like classical piano, when I was six or seven years old. And um, the interesting thing was I had a, a piano teacher who was also into a little bit into jazz, but he was he used to be a, an organ player. He played the big organs in um, in movie theaters in the twenties in Berlin for how do we say in English like movies where like uh, silent movies silent or? movies yeah. that's the one yeah so he was improvising for these movies and he was a very interesting character so I was on the one side I was learning to play the classical piano but on the other side he allowed me to play on his organ at home with a, which already had a little run computer so I was uh, listening to this kind of sounds in his uh, in his house and got involved into this kind of rhythms also already there back then I always mention my uncle because my uncle was a hobby musician but on a very good level and in his house he had a, a room full of music instruments like literally everything like from, from analog instruments to a Roland System 100 synthesizer and 
as a child uh, we could mess around like my, my cousins and me in this room and we could use anything that was there so that was a great opportunity to start to play music on your own somehow you know just do whatever you want along with a like very strict classical education i had also and those early experiments what, what did they sound like well, <laughs> To be honest, I have no idea because I didn't record anything. It was basically uh, making noises, you know. I really like to because there were so many things to like, so many knobs to turn in this place, and and really enjoyed making noise as children. I would say it was obviously the the Dorian Gray. H how long after was that when Robert Johnson came? Along? Oh, Robert Johnson opened. I mean, this year we have fifteenth birthday of Robert Johnson, but Dorian Gray opened already um, eighty uh, seventy eight, I think, and. Then the next step would be the Omen, the very famous Frankfurt-based club where Sven Veit was one of the owners and where he was playing every weekend. So that was the next step for me. And I was a constant, I was one of the Omen kids, like from day one for a couple of years, spending every weekend in this techno club. How big an influence was that? on you as a very big, very big. I, to be honest, I mean, uh, there's no one who had a bigger influence on me back then as Sven Fee, definitely. And um, he was the DJ you were waiting for every Friday. And he was the DJ who was able to educate the people and to play the most crazy records back then already. And the thing was, he realized you as a as like one of the kids when you go there regularly one day, um, because it was always so packed that not everyone could get in, for example. So he was going outside, taking care of who was coming regularly, and he was pointing with his finger on you and put you inside. Then later on, he started talking to me, and so we got, became friends somehow. And then um, I was part of his label for a while, and so uh, we, we, we started to have this kind of history. Sven is someone that I've, I've heard you mention before as a DJ who really pushed your productions, especially some of the alter ego stuff. He, he kind of helped create a bit of a buzz around some of those records yes yes definitely and he also here was asking like even then even back then i'm hardhouse the label he used to run and iq it wasn't really my cup of tea musically but i really liked liked him as a person and he liked me and he liked Jörn, like my, my my production partner so that's how we ended up on his label because um, the records we put out in the, like the first ultra ego albums had nothing to do with the sound we we put out later with the big hits like uh, rocker or whatever or petty ford it was more or less homelessing music or sometimes ambient ambient music but he wanted to have us on the label and he took us on on tour with him even though he knew we we wouldn't be like we wouldn't play as hard as people would expect you to play on a rave or something. He just, he was believing in us. So I, I really appreciate that. At what point did you decide, all right, I'm going to make a career out of music? Because you, you, you know, you went to, mm. to law school for, yeah, for a time, didn't but you? only for one year. And then I decided law school wouldn't be the, the thing for me and I already knew it before. But the thing was, I, I mean, when you finish high school and your parents are waiting for something, Oh, you better do something and that's what I did with law school but then after one year I really knew that was nothing for me and I, I, start, I started to um, to study musicology for quite a while even though I didn't finish my studies because everything else became too important or more important and very uh, I mean I was able to to play a lot back then already and the labels were taking off and yeah so it didn't feel right to finish the studies, you know. It felt right to become a part of a label and all that. 
And whereabouts were you were you DJing at that at that point? At that time, it was a lot around. I mean, there was parties every weekend around Frankfurt first. Then the cycle became or the circle became uh, bigger, and you started to go to different places in Germany. But in the beginning, it was basically Frankfurt and the Frankfurt Rhine-Main area, and we did parties on our own also, which was also very important. Yeah. Who did you do those parties with? Back then, a lot of parties with uh, people from my my hometown, but also with Ricardo, for example. He was doing parties back then. Atta and Heiko were having different uh, nights at different places in Frankfurt. Yeah, that was the combination. How did you first meet Ricardo? I think we, we both met first time in a club in my hometown, which is Darmstadt, 30 kilometers south of Frankfurt. And we, we both grew up there. And somehow um, we get to know each other and he, because he was playing as a percussion player and I was playing as a drummer in a band. So we, we somehow got to know each other. Did you find it was the DJing or the, the production that really took off first? I think for me it was the production because I, I was playing in bands already, as I said. I was playing in, as a drummer in, in different bands but, and I always liked to make music. And as soon as I found out how to produce this kind of sounds I heard on certain records. I was desperate to get a sampler and I was desperate to get a 909 and all that. And I was working every every holiday and step by step I bought my own little studio. And production was first. So I was doing nothing but making music in my in my living room at home and um, recording things on four track that's that went on for uh, at least two or three years I would say. And then with this I finally I had a demo tape that I was quite happy with and I handed this demo tape to Jörn Wutke because I knew he already had a studio place at his grandfather's house which was more professional and he called me up the same night and saying hey I really like what you do let's do something together you come over to my studio and we can record something and that's how how Alter Ego and Sensorama and all that started. So is that how you heard about Jörn it was very much okay here's, here's a guy with a, a good setup he knows what he's he's doing let's send some music off to him yes because um in this town everyone like it's not a big city like probably like 100,000 120,000 people so if you're young you know each other somehow and there was one guy telling me you you got this demo finished give it over to Jörn he already has a studio so that's how it how it was so i gave him two tapes one phone call and that's it. So he called you later that same night. Same night. Yeah. How how did things develop from that point on? How quickly did you guys start working? Very quickly because um, I already had finished more or less the first um, Acid Jesus album, which came out later on Klang Electronic. But I was able now to re-record everything in the studio, and um, I I recorded everything back then on a on a hardware sequencer, and he had a computer in the studio, like an old Atari. And now I was able to to modify the arrangements because of I was able to put all the MIDI data into this computer and then work on the tracks again and record them professionally. And this is how it's how it's, how it started with him. So he he gave me the opportunity to to take the next step in the studio. And he's a few years older than yes, he is. He's yeah. um, around five years older than me. And so, what was the the dynamic like between the the two of you? I would say since he had the experience in the studio, he was able to especially to help with the mixing and also with the arrangement because he saw he had the different perspective. I was always this like kid working at home on, on, on tracks and being very focused on certain aspects which he saw maybe a little different. So it was quite interesting. We got very good uh, along with each other and found a way to 
like a workflow that was interesting. In terms of your your work with with Jorn, I guess you kind of explored various different styles of music under different names. What kind of discussions were you having to to kind of decide what direction you were going to take your music together? Well, lots of discussions sometimes, and um, but in general, I would say, yeah, because I was making the music more or less all the time, and um, if we wanted to make like a slower track. We didn't discuss about the tempo because it was already like the ideas or the the, the basic ideas were were already um, there. But for example, if it comes to arrangements, like how does the track start, how does it finish, what is in between, what kind of instrument can we use, we did all the decisions together and had a lot of discussions also, definitely. Especially the more years you work together, the more this discussions. <laughs> and do you guys still work together? No, no, we haven't worked together for now for a couple of years. So um, we're still on the phone from time to time. But after 15 years, there was some, I don't know, something changed. And, and uh, once you're not going back to the studio for a while, it gets harder and harder to go back to the studio together. So what was it that, that changed? Was it just that the magic sort of disappeared from the, the studio dynamic? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was a change. The magic had gone at one point and it's hard to get the magic back sometimes and uh, at the same time it was um, very exhausting touring and playing your same like your own tracks with the same tracks all over again every weekend somewhere else all around the globe at one point because we had this huge hit with rocker i mean i w wouldn't like to miss a, miss a single thing or a single day but uh, there had to be a change for me and I, I remember a time when we were touring in Australia for a festival tour and we had this discussion in, in Perth like sitting in Perth in the pubs drinking a couple of beers and then I think that was the day when, when everything changed because we weren't we didn't get along with each other anymore so basically there had to be a change and there was a change I really want to ask about the, the alter ego stuff, and I mean, you mentioned Rocker. You know, there's tracks like "Gets Noch." You know, they were they were big, big, big songs. Mm. And how did that affect your career? How did that affect your life? Really? Oh, I think very much. I mean, at that time, uh, it, it changes a lot because um, you play to bigger audiences. People expect something from you, and also um, people think that you make like one rocker like for the rest of your for the rest of your life like all over again and another gates knock probably or something but that didn't happen i mean it, it was uh, it wasn't like this before and it wasn't like that afterwards so there was a certain time when we all when we were all very happy with the situation it was good fun it was lots of parties lots of good parties lots of touring lots of i don't know lots of everything but then at one point even that doesn't uh, make sense for the rest of your life and then uh, i always always try to experiment do something new and yeah i always try to surprise myself and to take the next step somehow and that wasn't um, possible with with alter ego after 15 years you've said before that you, you never are a person to, to follow trends it seems to apply even if you're the one who's set a particular trend how important is it for you to, to stick to your own creative path hmm I think that's the most important thing. I mean, you can try to pretend to be someone else, but that doesn't work out, I think. That doesn't work out. I mean, my music is very diverse, but that's the way I feel it. But I'm not pretending to be um, someone else. I mean, if you if you take a listen 
if you listen to what I'm doing or what I was doing for the last 20 years, it's different kinds of music, but it's still me. And I think the older I grow, the more closer to, to what I am is happening. So hopefully I have another couple of years front. <laughs> have you ever felt yourself getting kind of swept up in a, a scene or a, a zeitgeist and have to actually pull yourself back from it? Yeah, I think especially with the, with the peak of Alter Ego, there was this time when you had at Banger Records and all that and it was very successful. There was a certain sound going all around the world and we were part of this for for, for a certain time. And uh, But at the same time, I started to feel that it doesn't make sense at all to continue with this kind of scene because our intention was never to be part of the scene. I think Rocker was maybe like a blueprint for many other productions, but we never thought about the track being as big as it as it was so it was time to take another st to take the next step and, and go go out of it i would say it goes pretty fast i mean once you have a big tune people consider you or they want uh, many people would like to have you the same way all over again how did it feel to have rocker actually as a blueprint for and to hear it sort of aped ah. on so many other tracks of around that era it's interesting once something like this happens you really can't in, in the moment it happens you really don't see what's going on if you look if i look back i think it is what's kind of crazy because it was around all around everywhere like i went to a party and it was played like more or less every night and um but we never had the intention to to to, to make a hit by producing rocker it was just there people just loved it and then they started to hate it hate it i mean that's always the same but for us it was a big big push like in terms of playing in terms of audiences and all that festivals so yeah i mean i really loved it for a while and do you ever think oh, i wonder if this is going to be massive or i wonder what's going to happen with this one no never to be honest i was always surprised by the success of, of a certain tune I, I i was producing i never had the intention in the studio to make a hit for example with gates noch is the same it was a compilation track for a cocoon compilation i was in the studio th thinking what the hell should i do i have to get this thing finished within the next 24 hours so i used this little monophonic synthesizer like a cork elect uh, from the cork electribe series and was messing around with that one and then I had this simple rhythm and the sound and I thought like that's kind of funny let's keep it like it is and suddenly Sven played it um, and he gave me a call and saying like hey you know what happened nobody knew the track but they all freaked out we got to be careful with this one and uh, I was like okay let's see what ha what's hap what happens and uh, then finally uh, it was in the French charts and it was I don't know, it was in in Italy, it was, it was top 20 or something. I don't know, something like this happens with this kind of um, music. No one's singing, it's just a beat and a, and a sound and it makes people happy, happy. That's kind of funny. And sort of beyond alter ego, uh, you've worked under so many different pseudonyms, Soylent Green, uh, Eight Miles High, of course, Sensorama. What have you enjoyed in the past about working under so many different aliases? Well. I think back back in the days it was quite normal to have different aliases because um, I released different kinds of music on different platforms and any, everyone was asking me for another name basically and I was always hiding I was I liked to hide different monikers back then and um, it also keeps you it's, it's like a bit like 
playing a different role in a, in a movie or something. And uh, I thought this was very enjoyable. You've said before that Eight Miles High was your favorite alias to hide mm. behind. Yes. Can you, can you explain that? Yeah, I think Eight Miles High was a lot of freedom in this project. I think it was very much home listening at the same time with quite hard techno tracks and it was a wide range of music and uh, I think it, it, it was compared to the things I did with Jörn, it was the most of myself in, in the project Eight Miles High. There was finally one album released I was very happy with and um, I felt very comfortable with Eight Miles High for a long time. Was putting out an album in 2011 under your given name, was that a, a symbolic thing? Was that like a, right, here I am? Yeah, I, I think it was because, I mean, you said right here I am, but at the same time it was, many people knew me only because of Geht's noch. I think it was about time to to say, hey, well, this is one track, but there's a few other things happening. I used to have a lot of different monikers, but it's all it's all me. And I'm trying to release whatever I want under my own name in the future. Does the idea of, of collaborating in the studio still interest you? Well, sometimes it does. Yes, For, for example, with, um, I was asked to go in the studio with Seaman Mobile Disco last year. And I thought that was quite a good idea. We had lots of fun and, and I really liked the guys. But in the daily life, to be honest, I really enjoy to be on my own and in, in front of my like little setup and uh, messing around with the things I have. It's like a, if you compare it to a painter or so, I mean, he doesn't ask usually someone else to paint like the one corner and I continue with the other one. And I see myself more like this. Uh, I mean, I've played in bands before and if I find the right people or the right person i would try it again i mean i'm quite happy how it is at the moment i guess after so many years working yeah in collaboration is, is natural it was a close it was a very close work relationship we had and as i said we worked more or less every day together for 15 years and yeah i had it all i think i wanted to ask you about the simian mobile disco collaboration you mentioned um how did that sort of come about did they did they get in touch with you or yeah i mean i think their manager or management um they sent me an email last year asking if i would be interested in working with them and i was like mm, that's a very weird idea because I, I i mean i knew them i knew they they had quite a few big tunes and, and huge remixes and all that but then i thought like that's actually quite interesting and and because i used to play records from their label uh, quite often and then suddenly I had this phone call or this email, and I said yes, let's do it. And uh, after a couple of like after a couple of weeks, we ended up in the studio in London. So you, you went to their yeah their studio. I went to their place. Cool. I think they put out like three different collaboration twelve inches on their label, and I was one of them. And are you kind of open to the idea of future projects along those lines with other with other artists? Or? Why not? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm open for this. Yeah. You know, this year Robert Johnson's having. Fifteenth uh, year anniversary celebrations, and I, I wanted to to ask about your involvement with that club from from the early days through to through to now. How has that helped shaped the last sort of decade of of your of your career? I think Robert Johnson was also very very important. Atta, who who was one like the main person behind behind the idea of Robert Johnson, I worked with him with Playhouse and Clung for a long time, and then one day he showed up with the idea having his own club and everyone was like Ooh, crazy idea but let's see what's happening and he made it happening and um, 
15 years ago I was more or less playing for the first party and um, I'm a resident since uh, day one and it's a bit with the, the same story like with the labels because Atta is a very he's a very free thinker a very free thinking person and if he has an idea uh, it's going to happen somehow for him and the club is completely his idea is a, it's a very is a place to be very free with your music music you have the best circumstances to play the music and I'm very happy to be part of this so you said you played at the, the opening party um, for Robert Johnson what what was that like you know in the beginning it wasn't really it took a while until Robert Johnson became famous in the area because there was lots of competition with other places and Robert Johnson is a bit f out of the city it's in the suburbs or it's already in the next city called Offenbach and so people were not really well in the beginning in the, in the beginning not really interested it took almost two years until the club was was becoming successful so in the beginning there was a lot of experimenting the sound system wasn't very good and uh, yeah as as with everything you need some time in your opinion what was it that that helped build up the the momentum for the club was it just a word of mouth thing and and utter and and the residents sort of sticking to their the principles yeah because it was so i mean the place is quite minimal and the idea was quite abstract because you everything was different there was no fancy light show there was no couldn't see any uh, bottle of alcohol it was all no branding no brands there was no sponsorship or anything so it was very different compared to other places and other clubs and uh, people were a bit irritated by that in the beginning because it was so unique so it took a while until they really understood what was happening as a resident were you able to and are you still able to sort of go places with your sets that you aren't able, where you aren't able to go elsewhere Yes, I mean, I feel so comfortable at Robert Johnson and people are usually uh, very open-minded and uh, you you couldn't play a lot of things there. And at the same time, you always have plenty of time because there's no restriction with the with, with any like like closing hours or something. So if it's a good evening or a good night, you can easily end up playing six or seven hours. I guess in terms of the, the anniversary coming up, have you taken a chance to kind of look back and think of some of the nights that have really shaped... <laughs> your memory of the club or your well there, there's been a few definitely but it's hard sometimes the best nights are hard to remember to be honest <laughs> but no it's 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 we had we had a lot of great parties there and also a lot of great live shows for new years sometimes and stuff yeah but i i had great nights at robert Johnson definitely and i'm looking forward for the birthday i play with uh along with andrew weatherhall which is quite an honor and and he's been playing there also for the last 15 years on a regular basis so this should be fun and there was a there was a tour last year yes is that right um you were part of that in, in terms of some of the dates what was it like sort of going on on a sort of mini tour with other residents very nice very good we had a lot of we had lots of fun and there was also this robert johnson book came coming out that was um, the idea to have this uh, to, to show like the book to the public and to be on tour with the with the residents the people like Gerd Jansson or like Oliver Hafenbauer Atta yes and in terms of your own DJing how has how has your approach to DJing changed down the years <sighs> I wouldn't say it has changed that much I mean it's still one of the most important things I'm doing and I'm very happy about the situation right now I can play I'm people there's a certain interest and it keeps me 
there's still this general interest in the music, which is the main thing. There's no, it doesn't hurt. So <laughs> it's a great thing to do. You know, you still seem to play quite a few gigs across Europe and, and beyond. Are, are you more choosy these days about what sort of clubs or festivals you play at? Well, I wouldn't say I'm, uh, there's always a difference between people who can really choose and, and the others, you know, and I was, I'm still part of the others. I mean, it's, I, I can't really say I can choose between hundreds of festivals. That's, that's not me, but um, I like to play. So, and this is my job, my basic job. I like to go out on the weekend. And tonight you're, we're at uh, Nuit Sonor in, in Lyon and you're going to play back to back with Axel Bowman. What can we expect from that? Well, I wish I would know because uh, Axel and me were on the phone today and we were trying to discuss what we play and um, it's not it's not clear at the moment and there's uh, only one and a half hours to come, I think. And uh, I think we both not usually like type of control freaks behind the desk. So it should be fun at the very end. I mean, have, have you played many back-to-back sets? In the, uh, in the a past? few. I mean, I played back-to-back with... Uh, I had really lots of fun with Michael Meyer. I'm going to play another uh, back-to-back with him soon. But it's I haven't done it too often. So we will see. So we've got the album on the horizon for September. What else have you have you got in the pipeline for this year and, and beyond? I think the album is the main thing. And uh, the album um, comes along with a few, um, with a couple of videos. Um, I'm kind of currently involved in this different projects. And uh, then there's a tour planned for the States, for the US in, in October, uh, US and South America. I'm playing lots of gigs in Europe, Japan and all that. So it's I'm very busy, but the, the album is the main thing. 